Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I put up two words on a slide, which simply says, go fail. And students kind of start looking around like, what's going on? And I go to the next slide and it says, okay, you have 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom and you have to go ask for something. And get a no. You have to get rejected before you can come back. So again, imagine these really high achieving students used to succeeding in most of what they do. And they start acting, they start responding somatically. So like they start beating, their hearts are beating faster, they start sweating a little bit. And I go, okay, look, I'll be at the front of the room. If you need any coaching, any mentorship, I'll be here. But yeah, go leave the classroom, go ask for something and get rejected. And so students shuffle nervously out of the room. When they come back, the energy is just off the charts. So much so that I once had a, next door professor come over and ask to keep the noise down because students were just so pumped up from this experience. When we look at the people who are most successful, we tend to think, wow, they have a ton of successes, probably not that many failures. But actually what we see is that many of the people who succeed a lot also have a ton of failures. And so the question isn't, did they just get lucky and just sort of hit a home run on their first at bat? But rather, we're just willing to go up to the plate again and again and again. And amidst all those failures, were some really good successes as well. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alex, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out uh, called Becoming a Changemaker. But as a person who has listened to the show, uh, you know, and, and I both know we're not going to get out of this conversation without talking about education. And I never <laughs> want to start by talking about the book. But you actually wrote in and part of what piqued my interest was the fact that you are a professor uh, at Haas, which is the business school at Berkeley that rejected me as an undergrad. So I thought, what a perfect opportunity to air my grievances with a professor there. Uh, all joking aside, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping the choices that you have made with your life and career? My dad is a dentist and perhaps I was a change maker at a young age. So I think he dreamed of having his firstborn son follow into the dental footsteps. And I think at age like five, I said, nope, not going to be a dentist. Uh, so he no. gave up on, on that dream. And then my mom was a software engineer and she worked at Google in the somewhat early days, which was Nice for me as a kid growing up in the Bay Area because I got to go mm -hmm. visit her 
And that was before Google got all the healthy snacks. And so I got to enjoy mm-hmm. all the unhealthy snacks as a, as a high schooler. <laughs> Which you went to high school in the early days of Google. Earliest days, yes. I graduated high school in 2002. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that is the earliest days. Well, so, uh, you know, it's funny because I feel like the, the narrative around education seems to be really evolving with this generation of kids I see coming out of high school. Like you and I are close enough in age that we probably had sort of a similar narrative because I graduated high school in 96, but I'm curious, what did your parents teach you about making your way in the world? And then what was the role of uh, the value of education in your household? Well, education is super, super important. Um, but I guess the other part, in addition to my family upbringing, it's also the school in which I was attending. So I grew up in Palo Alto, California, so heart of Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. And I did a yep. high school uh, called Gunn High School, which is... Uh-huh. I know it. Yeah. The, often ranked as, you know, one of the, quote, whatever top schools in the country, but also <laughs> as a student, an absolute pressure cooker of a school. Mm-hmm. Um, so much yeah. so that a few years after I graduated... The school was on the front cover of the Atlantic for a piece about all the children that were dying by suicide um, yeah. in many parts by the intense competitive culture there. And mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, you're sort of like a fish in water that you don't really know how intense it is until you get out of it. Um, but on one hand, I'm grateful for a truly incredible education. On the other end, though, I mean, I just think about all the intense pressure that we had. Like, I remember when instead of taking AP uh, biology, I took honors biology and felt like I was dumb for doing so. I felt like, what am I doing with my life? You know, there's just so much pressure at the school that I think in in many ways was foreboding for a lot of the pressure that many students experience today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I remember Palo Alto being almost because I think Sarah Peck was here and she also went to high school in that same district. And it's funny because I remember if I remember correctly, when I was in Allstate band my senior year, the, the principal flute player was actually from Gunn High School. So not surprised. But so, you know, you mentioned sort of this sort of pressure for fear and environment. So what are the good things that came from that? And what are the, the bad things? And you know, you're at an elite university where I don't know about you uh, and UCLA, but I know for damn sure that I would not get into Berkeley today if I had the grades that I had in high school then. Uh, and I feel like everybody makes jokes about this, like Scott Gallo and Eric this. like people basically joke about the fact that they wouldn't be able to get into their alma mater. That's exactly right. And I joined the club. I would not be where I taught or where I went to school. <laughs> um, so on the good hand, like people really cared about education, like people really thoughtful about it. And for the most part, students didn't just sort of mail in their assignments. You know, I remember like a lot of us went above and beyond. Like we actually got engaged in the material. And Mm -hmm. like I think about like an English class, like we really engaged with the concepts. I think that was really special. But one of the things that I really, really felt at Gunn and something that I think inspires my teaching today is that it just did not promote a growth mindset. So ironically, Mm -hmm. growth mindset coming from Carol Dweck, who taught at Stanford right across the way. Uh, but this idea, like, you know, are your talents inherently fixed or can you grow into them? And I think Gunn and so many of my friends had this feeling of like a fixed mindset that just like you had some natural talent that's as much as you could do. And either you're a naturally brilliant mathematician or you're not. And as I think about it, honestly, I was pretty good at math growing up. But then I reached this point and I think it was geometry where it just no longer came easy to me. And mm-hmm. At that point, I wish I had a teacher who said, hey, Alex, you could do this. Like, you know, keep working on it. Try things a new way. Fail forward. But instead, I felt like, well, here I am, like the dumbest kid in the class. I'll drop down and drop out of geometry. And that changed my whole perspective. Like I went from being someone who kind of enjoyed math and thought like maybe I'm good at it to like, 
well, in comparison, I'm not good. So what am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's funny that you say that. One thing I wonder about, because I felt like I saw this at Berkeley too, and you've probably heard me say this on the show before, is here you have some of the brightest sort of young people uh, in the country going to these incredibly elite universities surrounded by equally bright people. And yet I feel that there's almost this sort of conformist nature to the way that they approach things. Because I always remember thinking, I was like, here's UC Berkeley, the most liberal place in the country, supposedly. And it's a breeding ground for conformity. It's basically a place that breeds future doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Like if you, I bet you, if you were to survey, maybe this isn't true now, but when I was an undergrad, if I surveyed 80% of the people that I knew, they were either headed to med school, law school, or an MBA program after some sort of management consulting or iBanking. That was the desire for the most part. Um, Do you find that that was the case in an environment like Gunn as well, that people just kind of had this predetermined career path? Because, you know, as you write about in the book, you and I both know nothing ever turns out the way we think it's going to. It's so interesting because we're forced on this path of at least external success of like, uh-huh. okay, take this prep class and do this extracurricular activity. That's what will bring you success. But I think often, and I find this in many of my students at Berkeley, they've been on this path without really questioning it. You know, they're uh-huh. really good at what they're doing, but not sure exactly why they're on this escalator that they're on. And so perhaps it's not a surprise, but I, I teach change making. And so mm-hmm. a lot of come to me oftentimes in their fourth year, sometimes their last semester at Berkeley, and they come to me. And I think one of the most common conversations I have with students is where they come in and go, okay, you know, I'm all set to accept my offer. At, it's called the ABCs, so accounting, banking, uh, consulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, and like, hey, you know, I'm all set. I've got what, you know, everyone says is like the dream position and fill in, you know, brand name consulting firm. Yep. But they go, but do I want this? Like, what am I doing? And a lot of what I give students in the office hours is, of course, an ear, but also sometimes it's permission. It's permission to zig when others add to go their own way, because you're exactly right. Really, really talented students, but so much pressure to find themselves into one of three career paths, especially at Haas. And I think often I'm the first person that gives them permission to say, you know, you can do it if you really want to, but if you don't really want to, you're so talented. Is there a better way to use your talent, your skills and your passions? And often there is. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, you, you may have heard me say this and I've written this down somewhere where, you know, I always say, you know, the options in front of you often blind you to the possibilities that surround you. And when you pick a college course, go through a college course catalog, this is what I felt at Berkeley was these are the majors. These are the potential career paths they lead to. And basically, it's like this funnel that just gets narrower and narrower as you progress up the funnel. So with that, you know, comment in mind, you probably have heard me ask this before as well. If you were tasked with redesigning the education system or redesigning the curriculum at Berkeley, if it, you know, if you got to basically just wipe the slate clean at a place like Berkeley, at an elite institution, how would you re- redesign it? How would you change things? As a former Haas reject, you know, this is very important to me. <laughs> yeah. So sorry to any deans that are listening here, but I would get rid of all colleges, get rid of all majors, and I would focus the whole education around themes. Because ultimately, as I think what you're pointing out, a major is arbitrary. When I was at UCLA, I did a major in geography and political science, loved those fields. But I also took classes in all kinds of random subjects, just things that interested me. And so what I would do at Berkeley is you've got leading scholars, leading researchers. I would tear down the majors. And instead, we would focus on key themes. 
So maybe you'd come to school and you focus on water access. And then within your water access specialization, you'd take some engineering, some anthropology, some psychology, um, some political science, some public policy, and you'd piece together your educational journey around that. It would no longer be about some arbitrary, this is my discipline, but instead, what are the meaningful problems that you want to solve and how can you get things from your toolkit that allow you to do so? Mm -hmm. I would also start segmenting the education experience a little bit. For me, it was absolutely transformational. I studied abroad once in undergraduate and once in graduate school. In undergraduate, um, I studied abroad experience, gave me the sort of confidence. It helped me find my voice. It got me out of my bubble. Um, and then in graduate school, I got introduced to social entrepreneurship while studying abroad in India. And that changed the whole trajectory of my career and life. So as much as possible, I'd try to segment the educational experience so that students get some of these transformational opportunities. So maybe you go to the UK to study English literature for a semester. You go to Shenzhen to focus on engineering technology and startups. I don't know. There's so many places you could go, but to segment it up a little bit. So you're not just getting sort of learning in the classroom. You're also seeing firsthand, like how does different, do different places in the world think about things in different ways? Yeah. Well, okay. <clears throat> have you ever seen the movie Accepted with Justin Long? I haven't, no. Okay. You should watch it. As a professor, I think you'll find it really funny. So he basically gets rejected from every college he applies to. So he has his friend uh, make up a website and print out a, a fake acceptance letter to a college. And he shows it to his parents and his parents write him a check. And uh, his friend accidentally makes the website fully functional. And he puts a button that says acceptance one click away. And, and, you know, they call it the South Harmon Institute of Technology. And he opens the doors on the first day and there's like 3000 people in line. And he's like, wait a minute, who are all these people? They pay tuition. And Louis Dean, uh, Louis Black is the dean of the university. Right. So the thing that, that was so fascinating was he actually went basically and asked each student at a certain, because he didn't know what to do. He was just freaking out because this was just a plan to like have his parents leave him alone. And suddenly he was stuck with, you know, these 3000 people who all paid tuition. And, uh, Lewis, Black, he was like, what am I supposed to ask them? He was like, or what are we supposed to teach them? He was like, well, why don't we ask them what they want to learn? And everybody is stunned that they're even being asked what they're interested in. And he appropriates their tuition to the, the bulk of their tuition to whatever it is that they're interested in learning. So they end up, um, you know, fighting this big battle with the dean at a, at a traditional university. And then, you know, the, the Board of Education says, all right, we're going to allow you to continue your experimental program for a year. The reason I brought that up was what you're talking about. What's the obstacle to doing that, even as a minimum viable version, like what is it that would prevent a university from saying, you know what, let's do a pilot of this idea for one year. Let's create an experimental curriculum, because it seems to me, you know, we were earlier talking about bureaucracies. So I think it's important we actually hit that as well, that if we're sitting around waiting for government bureaucracies and educational bureaucracies for this kind of change, it's never going to happen. So you, the guy who wrote the book, Becoming a Changemaker, why is it that, what is it going to take to, to make this kind of a change? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, there are some bright spots. So look at a school called Minerva University, which I think is really innovating the entire four-year undergraduate curriculum in fascinating ways, including students who attend it. They end up going to, I think, seven different cities before they graduate. They do sort of semesters and uh, around the world. So there are some people that are innovating it. But I think we need to look at what are our reward structures because the university is set up in such a hierarchical way. And a lot of it is led by faculty and faculty with tenure and faculty mm-hmm. with tenure based on certain disciplines. And that's the way the whole system works. And so when we think about like a call for system change, 
it's hard to just put a Band-Aid on a cut. It's hard to just put sort of one little program on top of an existing infrastructure of 35,000 students. We need to be thinking about a sort of a deeper approach to what are the systems that are in place that are blocking this innovation and how might we start to change those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing that I'm curious about, this is something that really struck me. Um, William Dershowitz was here. You you may have read his book uh, called Excellent Sheep. Um, but one of the things he talked about, and he you know, worked at Yale as a, as a professor. Um, and I, I, I remember correctly, I think he went to an elite university as well, but he actually talked about this sort of entitlement that, uh, people who go to elite universities have in terms of sort of, you know, feeling like the world owes them everything simply because of the name on their, you know, degree. And this is, you know, one of the things that he says, as two dozen years at Yale and Columbia have shown me, elite colleges relentlessly encourage their students to flatter themselves for being there and for what being there can do for them. And the advantages of an elite education are indeed undeniable. You learn to think in certain ways and you make the contacts needed to launch yourself into a life that is rich in all of society's most cherished words. But then he says, the first disadvantage of an elite education is how very much of the human it alienates you from. And the second implicit in what he's been saying is that an elite education inculcates a false sense of self-worth. That, you know, as a Berkeley alumni, that just struck me so much because I, you kind of related to that. I thought to myself, yeah, I, I would say that I had friends who, despite being Berkeley undergrads, were idiots and jerks and thought the world owed them everything because they were smarter than, you know, the average person. Um, what do you find, what do you find when it comes to this in your students? Like, do they have the awareness that, by the way, this is not a reflection of reality? I mean, going to gun is also not a reflection of what the rest of the world, you know, country is educated like. Um, you know, you and I grew up in relatively privileged circumstances. My dad was a college professor. It, it's taking 10 years of doing the show for me to realize it's like, wow, that actually is a privilege, believe it or not. Huge privilege. I think it's so important to recognize that. You mentioned uh, Scott Galloway earlier. I think he's done important work around reframing the sort of shift from elite universities as like educational experience to uh, the luxury brands. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a, a dangerous trend that we're on. And I certainly see that. Uh, now, I think in some ways I'm, I'm lucky because students who take my class on change making, people that want to lead positive change, want to have an impact. Uh, I think they saw selections and maybe some selection bias in terms of the students that I mostly get to spend my time with. But I also run a program where students from around the world come to Berkeley Haas and they learn about innovation and entrepreneurship. And so I have the great privilege of welcoming them. And when I do, I talk about a really important cognitive shift for them to make, which is the shift from going from a consumer of their education to a co-producer. When you're a consumer, you expect everything to show up for you. You expect the professors to perform for you. You sometimes expect to get a good grade simply by virtue of winning that lottery of getting into your your great school. Instead, I like thinking of yourself as a producer, which means that you have as much opportunity, but also as much responsibility to shape the educational experience of those around you as they do for you. So that means that when you see an opportunity, rather than complaining about it or sitting on it or finding something else to fix it, you say, hey, let me step up. Let me do something about this. It's that sort of sense of agency that I think many of our universities could do more for our students to support them in finding that. But then I think to your final point, it's so important that any of us who are lucky enough to be at really any university, but especially some of the more elite universities, 
we just take a moment to recognize how fortunate we are, how lucky we are. You know, mm-hmm. even those that get in, I think about a school like UCLA, where I think the admissions rate is like in the single digits now. They have yeah. 130,000 people applying that there are so, so many students that could thrive at the university that just don't get in. I think we have this false sense of self-worth when we win that lottery, because ultimately there is a lot of luck, a lot of chance, not just in our experience growing up, but also how those admissions policies work and whether we win it or not does not mean that we are necessarily um, totally uh, worthy of it and that others aren't. There's so many people that could thrive in that position. So the question is like, do we take advantage of this to help make a more equal and just society for all? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you saw the Netflix documentary uh, about the Varsity Blues scandal and you know, Rick Snyder, uh, and they were showing all these kids, you know, opening their their acceptance letters, not the actual physical letter, but, you know, clicking on the website, because I, I don't know if you actually got a physical letter in the mail, because I did. I remember it was basically you got the big envelope or the small envelope and you just knew. And yeah. um, so, but to see the reactions I didn't feel that, you know, when I went, got into Berkeley, I just had this jumping up and down, you know, like my life is set reaction. And I also didn't think, oh, my God, my life is over when I didn't get into Northwestern. Like, But the way I saw these people react, I was just like, wow, that's the pressure we're putting on people these days when it comes to college. This can't possibly be healthy. It can't be healthy. It's not healthy. And we see that we wrap up so much of our self-worth in those sort of use the analogy, the big envelope or the small envelope. And it's also, I'm a relatively new dad. I've got a 22-month-old at home. And I'm already starting to see all the pressure that parents put on themselves and their kids to, quote, succeed. And so we've gotten Mm -hmm. to the point where college acceptance isn't just a measure of you as the student. It's also a measure of your parents. You know, did your parents give you the right opportunities? Were they good parents because you got into Yale? uh, Or they not good parents because you got rejected from UPenn? You know, there's so mm-hmm. much that's wrapped up in that single admissions decision, which, again, is ultimately a bit arbitrary anyway. It's so, so much pressure for students and for families. Yeah. Well, let's get into the book. Talk to me about how you, you know, came to arrive at this entire idea and then what led to the birth of this book. So I'm a social entrepreneur before joining Berkeley Haas. I co-founded a social venture and then through some good luck. I got to uh, join the staff at Berkeley Haas. And then I remember I had a conversation with the then senior assistant dean of instruction at Haas. So the person who oversees all the faculty, all the curriculum. So I went to him for advice on a career transition. But I think he could tell that my mm, part wasn't really in it. So I remember he said, but Alex, what do you really want to do? I said, well, what I really want to do is teach. And then I think I started mumbling something about how, you know, most faculty are older than me and blah, blah, blah. Because Alex, what do you want to teach? And in that moment, it became completely clear. I said, I want to teach becoming a change maker. And to my shock and delight, uh, instead of rejecting me, he said, okay, sounds interesting. Put together a syllabus, show it to me, and we'll go from there. So I literally leapt out of my seat. I shook his hand, walked out of his office, closed the door, then immediately pulled out my phone and Googled how to create a syllabus because I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) But that was the start of the journey. And so this class that I started teaching at Berkeley is the class I wish I could have taken at the beginning of my career. Uh, I brought together the fields of entrepreneurship, innovation, social impact, leadership, change management, and really focused on how can we equip the next generation to lead positive change from where they are. You know, we tend to do, especially in Silicon Valley, this concept of heropreneurship. We put the, mm-hmm. the lone innovator up on a pedestal. Uh, but I believe that change comes from all of us. We can all lead positive change from where we are. 
And so putting together this class at Berkeley was my attempt to make that case and to help these students lead change, to work on their mindset, their leadership, their action skills. So they were equipped to lead positive change from wherever they might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, know, you open the book by saying there are three ways to rapidly accelerate your career and impact. The first is to become a change maker yourself. The second is to surround yourself with change makers. And the third and most trailblazing way is to help others around you become change makers. So you also mentioned that you have these students who kind of self-select and there's a bit of selection bias because, you know, the, what you call the ABC career path seems almost contrary to this, like, like the complete opposite path to this. So is this something that people have to want before they even make a decision? Because I feel like in a lot of ways, in the same way people think that college defines your life, people feel that that first job defines everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as somebody who was a Berkeley undergrad who got fired from damn near every job I had until I was 30, I realized it just, I made a lot of the wrong choices. So I, I'm curious, like when you encourage people to think about the choices that they're going to make for their first jobs, how does this all play a role in that? Yeah, one of the things we talk a lot about in the class is taking a long-term perspective, playing the long game. Um, changemakers often have this uh, feeling that they, this immediate urgency of leading change. That's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. But also they need to recognize that change takes time. Um, I'm inspired by uh, one of our guest speakers we had in class, or I write about him in the book as well, Sid Espinoza, the first ever Latino mayor of Palo Alto, California, at the time the VP of philanthropy at Microsoft. And so he talks about how we need to stop thinking about change as an individual sprint and instead start seeing it as a relay race. That our job is to take the baton from those who come before us. And then in the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we'll be working on it, advance that baton as much as we possibly can. And then when the time comes for us to pass off the baton to others, to do so in a way that sets them up for success through mentoring, through support, um, so that the next generation is ready to go. Really try to get my students and in the book, my readers to think about that long-term approach to change. Mm-hmm. Now, on a practical yeah. level, when it comes to taking that first job, we talked a lot about the work of Simon Sinek, which is based on the work of Coase at NYU, about sort of playing the infinite game. And so yeah. while getting that first job is finite, you sort of win that or not, your career is actually infinite. What I find and what I talk to my students about is they often over-control for the short-term pain of that first job versus the long-term benefit of thinking a bit more expansively. There's so much pressure to get that first job because again, that's sort of the next defining rung on the ladder. Now, when you're mm-hmm. 18, it's all about, well, which college do you get into? When it's 22, it's which brand name are you working for? And so many students are so focused on getting that job without thinking about, well, what is it that I actually want to do? And so a conversation topic I have so often with my students is that they're really focused on the name on the business card. So the McKinsey or the Deloitte, that's fine. That's what you really want. I really encourage them to think about not just like what's the brand you're working for, but who's the person that you're working for. I've had the great privilege of working with a couple of amazing change makers, people who mentored me, who support me um, and their mentorship, having them as my manager made way, way, way more of an impact in my trajectory than whatever company I was working for. And so I encourage students to think not just about what's the job, but who will be spending your time with, who will be managing you, and who will hopefully be mentoring and advising you as you go. Yeah. Well, we had Liz Wiseman here, and it's funny you say that, because I know you're a friend of the book, and I remember distinctly her saying this. She said, the most important choice you're going to make is not the job, but your first boss. And it's funny because if you read books by people like uh, Biz Stone, who you know, was one of the co-founders of Twitter, 
he references his first boss as being somebody who was instrumental. And, you know, I, I jokingly say this is the opportunity that cost me $150 million uh, because I, you know, met this entrepreneur in a coffee shop. This was, you know, summer after my senior year, I was a super senior the one more semester. This guy tells me, he's like, I can pay you $10 an hour. Another guy's like, I'll give you 25 bucks an hour. And of course I took the 25. And, you know, the guy who gave me 25 shut down his startup that summer. The other guy ended up going on to start three companies in Silicon Valley and, you know, ended up being worth like hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm just like, okay. And I, I think that's so hard when you're that young to have sort of that long-term view, because I also feel like there's this just competitive game. It's like, oh, my friend got this salary, so I need to get that. Because like, that's what I felt like. I mean, that's part of why I went to work in sales. I was like, oh, it's the only way I can make as much money as my friends who are in banking or consulting. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, yeah, and I'm not saying it's easy, but a lot of what I try to do with my students and in the book is to try to shift their locus of control from being really externally focused on success to be more intrinsically motivated, internally, and to uh-huh. focus a little bit less on what are the outward measures of success that you want. What are the inward characteristics that you want to develop? Do you want to become yeah. more entrepreneurial? Do you want to become more charismatic? Do you want to become more curious? What are the things that you want to work on? Because ultimately, those are investments in yourself. Those are the things that will benefit you, your family, your friends for the next 60 years. Whereas the outward measure of success, you know, a bit more money, uh, a bit more prestige, those are things that may bring you short-term uh, benefit. And again, if that's what drives you, that, that's okay. But do not lose track of the intrinsic things and especially those inner characteristics that you want to develop, which are truly changing your characteristics. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into some of those characteristics. The first one you talked about is effectively questioning the status quo. And you say effectively questioning the status quo requires two high level capabilities working together. The first is learning to recognize an established convention worth confronting the second is having the mindset and skills to take the risk to pursue the change and bring others along with you. What does questioning the status quo look like in practice? For many change makers, it begins with being willing to see the world both as it is and how it might become a bit different from others. Now, I think this is the perfect example time to talk about, you know, the bureaucracy at Berkeley, because you and I were talking about the fact that the biggest sort of skill you gain from going to a large public school is to manipulate bureaucracies to your advantage. It, it's kind of mind-boggling how useful of a skill that becomes, even though it's just a giant pain in the ass the entire time you're in school. But I totally. thought that was kind of a perfect way to talk about this status quo idea. It's perfect. One of the ideas we talk about in the book is this idea of zigging when others zag. So if everyone's yeah. going one way, there's often opportunities if you can go the other way. And so what I learned mm-hmm. at UCLA is that there's actually huge opportunities there. If you're the student who can stand out a little bit, can advocate for themselves, or can maybe find opportunities where others may not. And so mm-hmm. part of questioning the status quo is not just recognizing opportunities, but seizing them and, and taking action. Uh, I yeah. love the poem that Amanda Gorman delivered at the inauguration of Biden and Harris. It's called The Hill We Climb. And the final three lines of the poem, I think, really embody the way I think about questioning the status quo. She says, For there is always light if we're brave enough to see it, if we're brave enough to be it. Mm -hmm. So this idea, there's always light. There's always another way that's possible. If only we're brave enough to see it, so many people go about the world, go about their lives and just accept things as they are. Oh, a big bureaucracy. That's just the way it is. That's, you know, got a wave line. You got to just do this. Or I can't get that because none of my friends got it. There's always Mm -hmm. light. We're brave enough to see it. But then the third part, if we're brave enough to be it. It's not change thinking, it's change making. And so can you take that action? When it comes to bureaucracy, it's usually not a huge act. It's maybe one small thing to get started. It's an email that no one else will send. It's showing up when the bureaucracy opens as opposed to waiting to the end of the day. There's little things that you can do, but it takes that courage. I think that's an important lens to think about that 
Well, so many people just accept the status quo. It takes a bit mm-hmm. of courage, but if you can zig when yeah. others zag, a lot of opportunities can open up. Yeah, in that article that I wrote about advice for freshmen, I, I basically said that you can, you know, with a little bit of swagger and a smile on your face, you can get away with almost anything. Like my friend who had the audacity to not get into Haas and somehow still managed to graduate from Haas. <laughs> so what is the difference you see in your students between those who recognize the opportunity for change and those who act on it? I think the key here is what I teach is that the art of agency, this idea Mm -hmm. of that the world isn't just happening to us, that we get to help shape it as well. And this is a hard thing for many students to learn because so often we are kind of on that path. You think about the traditional trajectory of success. It's kind of like this escalator. It's like you get on, oftentimes inspired or enabled by privilege, but you sort of jump on this escalator, it keeps going up and up and up and up. And you kind of don't think about getting off. Whereas the students that really have that agency to question the status quo, they feel like, okay, my life is actually mine to be shaped. Uh, now that comes with risks because it's risky to jump off that escalator. It's risky to put yourself out there. But many of them are able to do what I call the risk quotient, the risk calculation to try to understand, mm-hmm. well, is this a risk that's worth taking? And I think what we find is that oftentimes we're not great at calculating risk. That when we think about taking a chance, we tend to focus a lot on the downside. We think about well, all the things that could go wrong as opposed to what could actually go right. And I think many of the students who are good at this are very good at what I call protecting the downside. So in other words, they mm-hmm. think about what's the worst thing, what's the worst case? How can I protect against that? How can I make sure that like things don't go totally terribly that, you know, I go talk to someone in the bureaucracy, I don't get kicked out of school as a result of asking, right? How do you make sure <laughs> right. the worst case can happen? But then as long as you know that you can kind of mitigate against that, well, then you find a lot of upside to taking action. Yeah. Well, it's funny as we just did an episode of Risk on Creativity Hour, our, our weekly segment that I did with Lincoln and Gareth. And, you know, we're talking about sort of having a uh, sort of boundary of risk. And I was like, well, mine are ridiculous. They're like, if it doesn't lead to potentially jail time, bankruptcy or death, it's probably not as serious as you think it is. Um, but let's talk about risk in the context of trust, because one of the things you say is as a global society, we're facing a paradox. Think about all the major trends that shape the world, globalization, social media, online retailing, distributed remote workforces. They all sit atop a bedrock of trust. The ability to trust and be trusted has never been more important. And you talk about these three interrelated pillars of trust, trusting ourselves, trusting others, and earning the trust of others. Can you talk about how to develop those? Totally. And so I started thinking about trust. It's my own experiences the co-founder of Start Some Good. So when I was first in the early days of leading the company, I used to judge myself based on how many times my teammates would come to me and ask me a question, ask me for my advice. And I started thinking, wow, look what an amazing leader I am. They're coming to me, they're saying, Alex, what do you think about our social media strategy? Hey, Alex, what do you think about this Excel document that I made? I'm going, wow, I am a great leader. But what I realized is that we had become like a merry-go-round. I was at the center of this merry-go-round and there was all this activity swirling around me, but we were firmly stuck in place. All because I didn't trust my team enough. I didn't give them the responsibility to go run with things. At that moment, I made the shift. I started thinking about my own leadership, valuing based on how many questions could my teammates make without involving me? How many times did they not need me? If I did that, that meant that I had done a good job of setting the vision and values and the ways of working, but then given them the trust to be at their very best. I like the work of Rachel Botsman, who's uh, a researcher at uh, Oxford and has done really important work on trust. And what she says is trust 
is a comfortable relationship with the unknown. And I really like that because many of us, especially those that are more analytic, like to have this like rational calculation of like, beep, boop, 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 boop. Okay, this is a, I can trust them. But instead, she actually realizes like, no, it's actually getting to be comfortable with the unknown, with taking what she calls these trust leaps, not knowing exactly what will happen on the other end, but at least getting out there. So mm. one aspect of being uh, a trust-driven leader is being willing to trust those around you. This is something that ties back really nicely to our initial conversation. You get a lot of students who are very GPA-driven, who do great work as an mm-hmm. individual contributor. And that's what they've been rewarded over time from taking standardized tests to just following through on higher education. And in my class, I make them do a group project because what better way to learn change-making leadership than actually leading with others and the inherent tension and learning points that come from a team of four where two people think one thing, two people think the other. How do you influence the other? And so the student came to me and said, um, hey, professor, um, I just want to do this by myself. Is that cool? And I think he assumed I would just say yes. But I said, absolutely not. Nope, this is a group problem. Um, so let's yeah. find ways for you to work with your team. And what I came to learn is that he, his MO, his approach was that he would just sort of take on everything, do it his own way. He had very high standards. And he just trusted it. I did it myself. I would do it the best. And I tried to get him comfortable with loosening control without losing control, with finding ways to empower those around him to uh, give small parts of the project away so that others could contribute. And there's practical ways you can do this. So I talk about, you know, being clear on the what, flexible on the how. Imagine that you're planning a speaker's series. You might, and you want to delegate it. You might say, okay, look, I want 50 people to be there. I want a panel of four people. I want two men and two women. But beyond that, I don't care how you get there. I don't care if you do Instagram ads or Facebook ads or post flyers. I don't care if people are younger or older or whatever. There's things you care about, things you don't care about. And so can you enable people to take some action because you've created that framework, which is this is what, these are non-negotiables, but this is where you actually have some, some flexibility. And then on developing trust in yourself, something that I find in many of my students as well is that they are very talented, but haven't yet developed that trust in themselves especially the trust in themselves to navigate uncertain or ambiguous circumstances. So I Mm -hmm. love the words of General McRaven. He gave the commencement address at University of Texas. And what did this amazing general give as his words of advice to these outstanding graduates? (laughs) Make your bed. He says, make your bed. Because uh, you start the day with a little win. You start building those trust-inducing habits. And at the end of the day, even if you had a bad day, you come back and, hey, at least your bed is made. And so trusting mm-hmm. ourselves doesn't have to be these huge steps. It can sometimes be as simple as making our bed, finding little ways to gain that trust in ourselves. Yeah. Well, so it's funny. I, when I saw this part about collaboration, I kind of laughed because I'm like, okay, this is one of my, my weaknesses for sure. You say to be a great collaborator often means going slow at first so that you can go fast later. Uh, the initial steps of leading with values and focusing on alignment are not quick, nor should they be if they are done well, where each party is fully engaged. And I'm not a patient person. Like <laughs> anybody who has worked with me always you know, will tell you, Shreen has very demanding standards for time and he hates it when things take longer than they should. Like I will always challenge per- a person who says something will take how- however long it's going to take. Like, I have this copywriter and be like, oh, this is going to take two weeks. And we're like, why the hell is this going to take two weeks? You can do this in two days. And then I, I realized at times, I'm like, yeah, I can do this in two days. He can't. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas you know, I had another collaborator who was by far my best teammate ever. She would tell me something would take a week and it would be done the next morning. 
And I loved mm-hmm. her. Like she, you know, it was just like, all right, that is the standard. You know, like I never had to ask her if, like I never had to once follow up with her about anything. And I love her for that. Um, and it, it just drives me crazy when people are not like that. I so appreciate that. I mean, when we think about sort of going slow to go fast, uh, I like to make the case that change making isn't just for your career. It's also for your personal life as well. And so one of the ways that I've learned this lesson was when my uh, then fiance, now wife, and I were planning our wedding. We had just been engaged. I remember that. And, yeah. and there's all this pressure to say like, okay, let's get the wedding planned. We've been, we've been engaged for three days. Let's get the wedding planned. Um, and so we started off, we were on a hike and I remember that we started getting into the most ridiculous of arguments. We were getting in a fight about what our wedding colors should be. And honestly, I don't even care about our wedding colors, but like we somehow found ourselves getting in a fight about our wedding colors. We hadn't even decided like, I don't know, where will the wedding be? Who will be invited? You know, any of those types of things. And so we realized we need to just slow down. We need to slow down. And we took some time to just align on our values. What was the whole point of doing this wedding? What are the things we want the value, the wedding to enable? And so we came up mm-hmm. with some of our defined values, which included, for instance, that all of our family and friends are able to celebrate in our love together and that we're really present and enjoy the ride. And so much to our, I think, parents' amusement, we presented our value statement to them. But the thing is, by going slow, by deciding, well, what is it we actually want out of our wedding? Why are we doing this? Why are we putting the money and the time and the energy into this? then we could actually make decisions which flowed much more quickly as a result. Once we aligned on the bigger picture, the underlying values, well, then decisions like wedding colors or what kind of cake to have actually become a lot simpler because we're aligned on the the foundational elements. Yeah. Let's talk about rejection and failure um, because I think this really struck me and there are some really hilarious stories that you shared about this. So I wanted you to share those with you. We say our fear of failure often holds us back from asking for something we clearly want sure that we will be rejected when reality it's refusing to ask in first in the first place that is the actual failure um so you know i I think that that is so true and then you say the second you know is that the sting of failure is nowhere as near as painful as we make it out in our heads so let's actually address the second so how do we mitigate this sort of you know idea that this is so painful you know the way we make it out our heads because my friend Gavin and I were talking about dating, right? And we were just like, you know, like when we were in college, when we were younger, like the sting of a girl saying no, if you asked her on a date was just like the end of the world. And now it's just like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like at 40 something, you're just like, yeah, okay, I don't care. Uh, but at that time, it was just like, what I realized, I mean, it took me a long time to to learn this, but I finally, after a really bad breakup, which happened way late in my life, I was like, you know what? an individual opinion is not a universal truth. Absolutely. There's something called the failure paradox, which is this idea that when we look at the people who are most successful, we tend to think, wow, they have a ton of successes, probably not that many failures. But actually what we see is that many of the people who succeed a lot also have a ton of failures. And so the question isn't, did they just get lucky and just sort of hit a home run on their first at bat? But rather, we're just willing to go up to the plate again and again and again. And amidst all those failures, were some really good successes as well. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I write about the experiment that I do in my class, which, Serena, I would have loved for you to have done this when you were a student at Berkeley, because I think you would have come <laughs> up with things. Um, and so we spend, you know, a lecture talking about failure, failing forward, rejection. And then I put up two words on a slide, which simply says, go, fail. And mm-hmm. students kind of start looking around like, what's going on? And I go to the next slide and it says, okay, you have 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom 
And you have to go ask for something and get a no. You have to get rejected before you can come back. So again, imagine these really high achieving students used to succeeding in most of what they do. And they start acting, they start responding somatically. So like they start beating, their hearts are beating fast, they start sweating a little bit. And they go, okay, I'll be at the front of the room. If you need any coaching, any mentorship, I'll be here. But yeah, go leave the classroom, go ask for something and get rejected. And so students shuffle nervously out of the room. When they come back, the energy is just off the charts. So much so that I once had a next door professor come over and ask to keep the noise down because students were just so pumped up from this experience. And so as you sort of suggested in your lead into the question, two things happen. About one third of students, they're sure they're going to get rejected. And they actually get yes. I think about one woman who went like, hey, downstairs and she went up to the barista and said, hi, can I have a free orange juice? And she kind of expected to get an L and he said, yeah, okay. And she said, "Uh oh, um, okay. Uh, could I have two orange juices? And I get to her shock. He said, yeah, okay. She's like, oh, I'm supposed to fail. Uh, can I have three? And he said, no. And so she finally took her two oranges <laughs> in back in class um, with the oranges for folks. Um, so, so often we are sure we'll get rejected. And so we set ourselves up to fail from the beginning because we just don't ask for what we want. Then in yeah. the second case, which dovetails with a number of things we've talked about so far, is students realize that failure isn't fatal. They ask for things, they get a no, and no one laughs at them. They're not, their egos aren't destroyed. And if anything, they often come back to class with a little bit more confidence because they're proud of themselves for getting themselves out of their comfort zone a little bit, for asking for something and for having this experience and some of the spontaneity and magic that happens. And I think that perspective can change a lot of lives when they realize that failure isn't fatal and that it can't hurt to put ourselves out there and ask for what we actually want. Yeah, I mean, some of your students have gotten dates out of this experience too, right? Yeah, they've gotten dates, they've gotten Snapchats, they've gotten Instagrams. Um, but an internship, amazing things have happened as a result of putting yourself out on the line and, and asking. Yeah. So talking about this idea of both networked and micro leadership and, and how it plays a role in your ability to make change. Yeah, micro leadership is one of the new concepts I put forward in the book. And it comes from my belief that while leaders might be scarce, leadership is abundant. There might only be one CEO, only five vice presidents in a company. But I believe that each of us can practice leadership. We start seeing it not as a title, but instead as an act. And so what I like to do is break leadership down into its smallest meaningful unit, which is a moment. When we think about it, we have these leadership moments that appear around us dozens of times per day. You know, little chances where maybe a colleague of yours has been quiet during a meeting. You say, hey, you know, I haven't heard from you. Did you want to share your perspective? Or maybe it's having the courage to say no when everyone else is saying yes. Or maybe it's willing to stay late to help a new colleague clean up after an event. These are all tiny little leadership moments. Then when you start seeing things through the lens of micro-leadership, you'll see, oh, there's actually moments around me all the time, every day, where I can seize them, where I can step up, I can take action, I can serve others. And when we do so, the whole concept of being a leader feels much more inclusive. You know, we so often tell the story of leadership through the lens of this single heroic leader. We think about, uh, is scaling the wall or Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket or Rosa Parks refusing to get up. But when we talk about leadership this way, it can often feel exclusive because we can think, well, I don't have their charisma. I'm not extroverted. I'm not as courageous as them. Does that mean I can't be a leader? 
But no, through the lens of micro leadership, we see that each of us can practice leadership no matter who we are, no matter where we are. It's all about seeing these moments and seizing them. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about three groups of people that play a role in our ability to make change, which are the champions, the cynics, and the fence sitters, and says champions are inspired by the possibility of the change that we're articulating. Cynics are those who actively oppose change. Face sitters are those who aren't sure what to think when it comes to change. So how as aspiring change makers do we, you know, navigate the dynamic of these three groups of people? Yeah, thanks. And that's based off of the work by Nobel. That's N-O-B-L, which is a change consulting firm that I quote in the book. And yeah, they identify these three different groups. And to me, this is really elucidating because at least in my own experiences of leading change, we tend to spend a lot of time focused on the fence sitters. But here's what Nobel says. Nobel says champions, especially early champions, get them involved as early as you can. Delegate to that. Make them feel empowered. Make them feel part of the change. Uh, make them feel like they are involved in this. So get the champions involved. Then, whereas we tend to spend a lot of time with the fence sitters, they say, actually, hold off on the fence sitters. And instead, spend a bit of time on the cynics, the change cynics. And I love the way that they frame the idea of a cynic. They say that often a cynic is just a disappointed idealist. So in other words, they may want to believe in your change, but they've just had enough experiences where someone hasn't come through or change has failed that they feel let down. And so Nobel says, share these people out. I reflect back on my own experience in building Start Some Good, where we were a young, scrappy social enterprise um, and we had a tech team, which was super talented, but only working very, very part-time. And so we had a lot of features missing, especially when you compared our site to some of our competitors like Kickstarter. And so I would get these emails from people and I would be honestly shocked with the passion with which they would write about how this early stage startup lacked this feature that they really wanted. And of course, my first inclination would be like, hey, don't you understand? We've got a team of four people. Like we're going up against these behemoths. Like we can't possibly have every feature. I wanted to be really defensive. But instead, I started seeing it through this lens of a disappointed idealist, of someone who actually believed enough in the vision of our site, our company, to spend the time to detail a like very specific feature request that they want. And so what I realized is to stop seeing them as cynics and instead seeing them as idealists, people who want to be involved, but just feel disappointed. And so I'd make a point of whenever we would get that feature shipped, I would send them a personal note, thank them for their feedback, ask them to test it out, be our beta testers and see what they thought. And oftentimes we shifted a lot of these cynics into some of our greatest champions. Um, doesn't happen always, but I, that perspective shift made a lot of a difference for me. And then they say with fence sitters, well, once you have the champions on board and some cynics converted, that's when the fence sitters will come over. And another interesting data point we have from Start Some Good. So we are a crowdfunding site for social impact. And this was a few years in, we recognized this magic tipping point. We found that in cases where a social enterprise raised 40%, 42% of its funding goal, 100% of them reached their total goal. In other words, if you could reach 42%, you're virtually guaranteed that you would reach 100%. Now, why is that? We realize it's because the fence sitters, a fence sitter, someone who like kind of likes your idea, but isn't sure, they're never going to be the first money in. But if you can prove you've got support from your early champions and you get to that 42% mark in our case, that shows there's traction, that shows there's people behind it. And that's when the fence sitters start jumping in as well. And so that's how you get the fence sitters involved rather than trying to rationalize with them early on. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about this change maker canvas because I think this was the part of the book I thought was like one of the most tactical and probably one of my favorites where you break it down into this mental model for Mason change where you have, you know, sort of the why, the core problem, consequences, um, you know, systems and substantive impact as well as scalability. Talk to me about those and then kind of, you know, how they play a role in, you know, more importantly, like where do people screw that up? So what do they overlook? Yeah, thanks. So the change rate of Canvas came out of my own work, working with thousands of change makers around the world, people who want to lead change, but change can just feel completely overwhelming. It can feel like I don't even know where to get started. And so based on my experience of mentoring, advising, coaching them, I put together this Canvas, which I hope is a tool that takes even complex change efforts and breaks them down into small, meaningful, actionable steps. I've seen it with my students where it shifts change from being a strategy question to instead being an execution question. That once you've got the strategy in place and the canvas walks you through everything from, you know, what's the root cause that you're trying to address here to who are the evangelists? Who are the people that might not be active day to day, but whose support is crucial to helping you make this change effort happen? So once you go through the strategy and all the blocks sort of build upon each other, then you've got this canvas. And then at that point, it's no longer a strategy question. Now it's all about execution. And this helps so many change makers go from that overwhelming first step of action, where it's like, I feel paralyzed with fear. I don't know what to do. And the canvas helps you say, okay, you know what to do. Now it just takes that one step, that courage to see a different light way forward and then to be the change. No. Wow. Um. So we're getting close to, you know, the end of our time, but I think there was one other thing that really kind of stood out to me and it kind of got me thinking about, you know, something that David Brooks talked about. And um, it was, you know, this idea that often we're not going to see necessarily the impact of the change. You know, David Brooks writes about this in The Road into Character, where he talks about all these people that had a profound impact that nobody's ever heard of. And I think that so often, you know, we read books like yours, we listen to podcasts like this one, we hear people like you come and speak. We almost sort of dismiss the you know, any change that doesn't have this sort of massive ripple. And you say, in fact, you may never know about all the people whose lives you impact through your change by actions, but no matter who you are, where you live, or what change you go on to, to lead, the ripples of your work will reach places you never thought possible. And I'm always kind of stunned when I hear things from listeners. Like I had a listener once who told me that she was a heroin addict and our show replaced therapy for her. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that, you know, because I, you know, there are times where I'm just like, yeah, I'm not as successful as I want to be. We haven't reached as many people as I would like to reach. You know, are we really making that big of a difference? Uh, so, so talk to me about that idea. Like, I, I think that where I'm going with that is, how do you get people to believe that the change they want to make is valuable regardless of who or how many people it reaches? Because I always say, you know, like the quote unquote influencers don't influence shit other than their own egos. Like a mom <laughs> who works three jobs to keep food on the table, and lights on is more of an influencer than any person on Instagram with a million followers who's famous for being famous. Absolutely. And so first we need to rethink uh, what it means to be a change maker. And so that's why my definition is simply someone who leads positive change from where they are. I make no mention of roles or title or even scale. And so a Nobel Prize winner has just as much claim to being a change maker as a solo contributor, a product manager comes up with a new way forward. 
And I think a key is thinking about change, not in terms of what's the one specific thing that I know for sure I can take credit for, to instead being a network-based leader. I'm really inspired by a number of the people, um, especially Gen Z, that are working on climate and climate justice. Now, climate is probably the definition of an overwhelming change effort where you can't possibly solve it by yourself. It's just impossible. And so seeing how these network-based leaders are emerging and taking action in their little way, you know, they're creating change for their communities, they're creating change in their sectors or their silos. But then by working together, that's where amazing things start to happen by learning from and with each other. And by not caring so much about who gets credit for it, but rather does the work get done? Mm-hmm. To me, that's an inspirational way to think about being a change maker is how are you contributing to what all of us are doing? And perhaps a good way to end is my fundamental belief, which is that change making is a team sport. You're going to yeah. do your best through and with other people. And once you stop caring about what specific credit you yourself get and instead what change you make possible, well, then everything changes. Well, I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask, and that is, what do you think it is? That makes somebody or something unmistakable. I think it a belief that the future can be better than the present and that I can make it so. So I mean it sounds like a cliched phrase, but fundamentally it's someone who steps up and believes in that sense of agency. And through our conversation today, we've t- talked on a number of different examples of that from the student in a UC Berkeley bureaucracy that advocates for themselves so they can walk across the stage uh, a graduation to someone who just sees light when others don't. Someone who's a micro leader who seizes leadership moments around them. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of the questions, well, what do I actually want in terms of success in my life? Is it to have that ABC career or is it to have a greater impact? So I think someone unmistakable is someone who is willing to question the status quo and willing to not just believe that tomorrow can be better than today, but decides to take action to ensure that it is. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Oh, thanks. Changemakerbook.com to find out all things about the book. I uh, would love to connect with your community on LinkedIn, which is my main social network. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.